All right, if you put your Bibles away, you can take them out again or look at the insert. As uh, we got lots of passage to go through today. Uh, there is an old story. You've, you've probably heard this one. It's a uh, story of a, a radio transmission from the U.S. Navy. Voice one comes on the radio and it says this. Please divert your course 15 degrees to the north to avoid collision. Voice two answers. Recommend that you divert your course 15 degrees to the south to avoid collision. Voice one replies, this is the captain of a U.S. Navy ship. I say again, divert your course. But voice two will not budge and says, no, I say again, divert your course. And the captain's voice is getting angry and he declares, we are a large U.S. Uh, aircraft carrier. And then voice two says, well, it's your call, but we are a lighthouse. <laughs> <laughs> it is uh, one of the great, I think, delusions of our modern era that we can shape and move reality however we want. We live in by far the most technologically, the most scientifically advanced era in the history of the world. And this makes us think that we can then take reality and we can shape it however we want. We don't have to always worry about it. But reality is a solid rock that cannot be moved. What do I mean by all that? Well, we've been going through Ecclesiastes and we've seen that uh, the preacher, who is Solomon, has been telling us that the nature of reality is that everything is fleeting. Your very life is fleeting. Everything that you do is fleeting. Not only that, you are not ultimately in control. You can make wise decisions, but you are not ultimately in control of your life. And what Solomon has been doing is trying to get us to face this reality head on and then he's trying to get us to respond rightly to it. Really, Solomon is the voice in the lighthouse. And reality, he's saying, is it's all, the word was, hevel. It's all fleeting. It is all something that we cannot control. We will all, no matter how much effort we put into life, we're all going to eventually die and be forgotten. Reality is, no matter how much you try to control your life, you can do all the things that you want, Ultimately, at the end of the day, you're not ultimately in control of the changing seasons. This is the hard rock of reality. But Solomon hasn't told us all this to be cruel. That's not what he's trying to do. He's not trying to make us depressed. He's saying, face reality, learn from it, and then he, as the lighthouse keeper, is trying to speak to us, to teach us how we should respond in light of all of these facts. So, he's done his point now. This point that all of life is fleeing and all in control, that's all done. He's made his point. I think he's made it very clear to us over the past few weeks, hasn't he? For instance, he's used the phrase striving after the wind seven times. No longer does he use that phrase in Ecclesiastes. The point has been made. Now we come to a shift in the book of Ecclesiastes. The question now shifts to something a little bit different. And the question, to paraphrase it, would be this. Okay, all of reality is fleeting. We're not ultimately in control of our lives. How then should we live? How should we live in light of the reality that we have been talking about? And you can see the shift in this new question that he asks in Ecclesiastes chapter 6 and verse 12. He says this, For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his fleeting life which he passes like a shadow. So the question then is, what is the good way? What is the right way for us to live considering the fact that our whole life is just fleeting like a shadow or in other words he used, like the wind? How should we live? How should we act in light of reality? 
So back to kind of the nautical theme. Our lives are like ships. We are on this great journey across the ocean of our lives. We will face many things we cannot control. Storms are going to come. Other times we're going to have calm, peaceful waters. We can enjoy the sunshine. And we're going to have to avoid all kinds of islands and navigate through all kinds of different places on this long journey of life. And Solomon has already told us, much of it you cannot control. But he does not want us to think that just because you can't control everything, you should just become passive and be like, well, I guess I can't do anything. I'm just going to sit on the ship and whatever happens, happens. Now what he is doing is he's going to turn to talk about what you can do. He's told us what you can't do. Now he wants to talk about what you can do. Because there are many things that you can do in life to avoid certain hidden reefs, for instance, that if you aren't wise in the way that you live, you can bring great destruction upon your life. He wants to teach you and I how to live in light of the fact that all of reality is fleeting and we cannot ultimately control it. So do you want to learn some practical stuff on how to live? Solomon's going to show us three things today. First, he's going to tell us we need to admit that we cannot chart the course of our life. We're just going to do five minutes on that because it's really a, a transition and a recap. Then point two is going to take almost all of our time. He's going to say you need to develop wisdom to navigate the sea of your life. And then we'll spend like five minutes in the end on the last point, which is rest confidently in the captain of your ship. Okay, so let's just transition now. Quick first point. We've got to begin, Solomon says, by simply admitting that we cannot chart the course of our lives. Look down at your text in Ecclesiastes chapter 6, verses 10 uh, through to 12. This is now uh, uh, the kind of transitional statement in the book. It's a bit tricky to follow, so let me just read it in verses 10 and 11, then I'll try to summarize it quickly for us. So look at verses 10 and 11. Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more hevel is the word here again. And what is the advantage to man? So, to name something, he's talking about, to name something implies authority over something, like when Adam named the animals. So now the question is, who has authority over all the changing seasons of our lives over time? Obvious answer, God does. That was the poem back in chapter 3, for everything there is a time. God is the one who is weaving all of time. We've already covered all that kind of stuff. And that poem has already described that to us. So now what Solomon is doing is he's transitioning to the next theme in the book. And he's trying to say to you, he's saying to me, okay, here's where we need to begin. We just simply need to end all what we said so far by confessing that we are not God, that he is powerful, that he is the one who is ultimately in charge, and it would be foolish of us to try to dispute with him about how he runs all of the world, because those words would just be like a breath. They would be of no advantage to us whatsoever. Who can dispute with God? He's powerful. We're not. So let's just begin by admitting that we're not ultimately in control of our lives. And since we cannot do this, we need to call out to God and ask him, how should we then live? And so that's what verse 12 is. We read it earlier, but let's look at it again. For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his fleeting, his breath-like life, which he passes like a shadow. In other words, we're asking, what is the right way to live in light of the fact that everything is fleeting like a shadow? Now, that question now turns us to the remainder of the book, and it brings us to the next points. Now we get into the meat of it all. 
Here's the second thing that he wants to say, and here's the answer. The big thing that we need to learn how to live is this. We need to develop wisdom to navigate the sea of our lives. All of life is fleeting. How should you live? Answer, you need to develop wisdom. That's what he's going to get at. And if you've been with us since the beginning of this series, you know he's talked about wisdom a lot already, hasn't he? And he's kind of emphasized two things. Remember on the one, th- one side he said, oh, you can develop all the wisdom what you want, but you're still going to end up like everyone else. You're going to end up just like the fool, which is dead. Yeah, remember that, that was super encouraging week. I like that one. <laughs> but all the way along, he's never said, don't pursue wisdom. He said, yes, you're going to end up dead. But all the way along, he's also said, you still need to pursue wisdom. In other words, what he's been trying to say to us is just because you're going to die just like the fool doesn't mean that you shouldn't try to avoid hidden reefs underneath the ship of your life so that you don't smash up the bottom of your life. You should develop wisdom so that that doesn't happen. Yes, you're going to die, but only a fool doesn't divert their course when there's an island in front of them. So he's saying, you got to develop wisdom to navigate the seas of life. And that is what he now wants to help us to do. So just look down at your Bible or at your insert, and you'll notice now as we come to chapter 7, doesn't that, what, what does this kind of look like to you, just the way it's laid out? It's not in paragraph form. What book of the Bible does this kind of remind you of? Yeah, Proverbs, right? They're kind of short sayings, just like the book of Proverbs. They are wisdom sayings to teach us wisdom. Nine times, mark this, I don't know if you saw this, nine times he says, one thing is better than another. One thing is better than another. He's contrasting things, and that is what wisdom is all about. Wisdom is not just knowing the rules. Wisdom is not just knowing what is right and wrong. It's very important to know what's right and wrong. But there are many situations where you're like, what do I do in this moment? Uh, I don't have an exact rule for this moment. That's where wisdom comes in. Wisdom knows the difference between taking two good things and knowing what the better thing is. A wise person is somebody who knows there's two really bad things right here, and I'm going to choose one that's going to create less damage when we're in a difficult situation. Wisdom is the ability to navigate the complexities of all of life when you're not always sure exactly what the rule is. And that's what he wants us to help us to grow in now, is to grow in wisdom. That's the key. And what we're going to do now is going to show, I think if you take all of uh, chapter 7 that we're looking at today, I think there's kind of three big areas that he wants us to help, to de- uh, wants to help us develop wisdom in so that we can navigate the seas of our lives. So do you want to become wise? Do you want to know how to live your very short life? Here's three big ways that you can become wise. You can learn wisdom. First, you can develop wisdom by learning from death. You can develop wisdom, you can become a wise person by learning from death. Now, death is our greatest enemy, isn't it? This is not our friend at all. None of us are able to steer the ship of our life away from the great cliffs of death that we are all eventually going to crash into. We cannot avoid it. It's impossible. Death is our enemy. But Solomon says, a wise person can even learn from their greatest enemy. A wise person, in this sense, death is our friend. Only in this sense. Death is our enemy in every other way. But in in learning wisdom, death can actually teach us something. How so? Well, let's unpack it. Look with me at verse 1. He begins, here's one of the better than statements. A good name is better 
than precious ointment. Now that's pretty easy and everybody just goes, yeah, that makes sense. Here's what he's saying. He's saying it's, it's no point in you having like $100, $150 perfume or cologne on if everybody around you is nauseous at the way that you live. That's what he's trying to get. He's saying it's far better for you to have a good reputation than to smell really good and wear really great perfume and cologne. And we all go, yeah, that's good. Your reputation is far more important than smelling good. All right, we're with you so far, Solomon, good. But then he completes the statement. And the day of death, to follow up, is better than the day of birth. Now you go, what? This is what wisdom sayings always do. You're supposed to go, okay, i got to ponder on that. i got to think on this for a moment. That's odd. Wouldn't, wouldn't all of us say the day of birth is better than the day of death? Well, of course, in many different ways it is. But in what sense does he mean death is better? Only in this sense. The death is a better teacher of wisdom than birth. A coffin is a better teacher of wisdom than a crib because a newborn baby is all potential. It's all future potential. But a funeral and listening to someone's entire life can teach you a lot of things about how to live and how not to live. So that's why he now goes on in verse 2 and he says this, another better statement. It's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Now again, he reverses the order of what we would say is better. We would rather go to a party than go to a funeral, wouldn't you? And he's not disagreeing. Solomon did like a good party. Some of them are always not so good if you read the Old Testament. He liked a good party. He's not putting down parties. That's not the point. His point is, if you want to learn wisdom... You will learn it far more if you go to a funeral or you go to someone's house where they're mourning the loss of somebody they love than if you're at some party where they're singing all kinds of great songs. So that's his point. So to wrap up so far what we're saying is we can learn from death. There's something we can learn as we go to a funeral, as we consider these kind of things. So here's something I want to suggest to us this morning. You can ponder whether you think this is right or not. I think one reason why a lot of us in this culture lack wisdom is because we have effectively removed death from our lives. I mean, of course, it's going to touch all of us eventually. But oftentimes there's care homes where people go. You don't, usually, you don't die in your house usually anymore uh, with your family around you like you do in the old days. Uh, many people can get through almost all of life never have seen a dead body at all. We dress it up. I mean, we have nice graveyards with great names like Ocean View Graveyard or something as if... A view at a graveyard makes any difference. That's a whole other story. But we have really, as a culture, in many ways, a lot of people point this out, we have sanitized death. We have moved it away. We're uncomfortable with it. And so we, don't, we do as much as we can not really to encounter it. Not only that, as we pointed out a few weeks ago, we don't even give ourselves a lot of time to think about it because we don't allow ourselves moments of pure quietness where we can just ponder. And it's in those moments when you think about your own mortality. It's in those moments when you think about your life. But we fill every single moment with entertainment through our phones and through media and through hobbies. We have very little time left in our culture to do any real thinking and pondering and to consider our own mortality. This has not been true through the history of the world and through in many other cultures even to this day. Let me give you an example. I was in Tanzania uh, some years ago, and I visited this rural church here. Uh, my brother's a missionary in Tanzania, was a missionary there, and uh, this is the church where he was working. I don't know if you can see down in the left corner of that building there, can you see a little wooden structure? You see that? 
You see it there? So let's, let's cry, cropped it. Let's zoom in on it. It's going to get a little blurry, uh, but you can still kind of see it. So I was walking by there, and I said to my brother, hey, hey what is that thing? Because I looked at it, and I thought, there's a lot of, the rains in Africa come down, and there's no pavement where we were. It was rural Africa. It creates huge ravines and ditches. And I thought, that looks exactly like the kind of bridges that we crossed. And so maybe for when there's lots of rains and it's cutting out, maybe you put that down for older people uh, so that they can cross over. You've got the hand railings to walk across with and that kind of stuff. And so I asked my brother, I said, what is this thing? He said, it's to carry dead bodies. It's really a stretcher, is what it is. And notice, it's sitting right beside the main doors of the church. Why would it go there? And this is what I'm asking him. It's a very simple answer. Because it gets used all the time, that's why. Because people are always dying of something or something or other. And, and, and the, to pay a professional mortician, you've got to have them come in from the city, tremendous amount of money. And so basically, you don't want to pay morticians to do that kind of thing. And so if your dad dies, you go to the church, you get that, and you carry your dad's body. If your child dies, you get your family together, you go to the church, you get the, the stretcher, and you carry your child's body. Because death is always coming every day. So it would be like us kind of having like, you know, so many people are dying in our congregation that we think, man, we got to stock up on coffins because there's no room. So where are we going to keep them? Well, the biggest area is the foyer. So we just kind of have a stack of coffins up in the, uh, in the foyer. I'm going to talk to guest services. Maybe we can get this going. So you can <laughs> walk in and be reminded of your mortality every week. <laughs> so... This is what's happening. So you're at the front doors of the church and you're walking in every Sunday and for them this is no big deal because they see death all the time. They're always aware of death. Every child is aware of death. Every adult is aware of death. And so it makes them think differently. It makes them live differently in the fact that death could come at any time. It's been the same throughout the history of the world. Let me give you one example. Maybe it's a little on the extreme side, but it's a pretty common story through the history of the world. I was reading about a famous uh, Puritan named John Owen. He's one of the most famous theologians, scholars of his era. The Puritan era was really the 16th and 17th century. And John Owen married a woman named Mary. Together, uh, John and Mary had 11 children. Ten of their children died in infancy. Their one daughter grew up to become an adult, got married. She died of tuberculosis. Then a few years after she died, John's wife Mary died. So now he's around like 50, 55 years old, no wife, no kids, and so eventually after 18 months, he remarried a woman named Dorothy. Now, do you want to know something really interesting? Do you know what one of the most common questions that people asked pastors back in the Puritan era was? You would never guess it. It's, this question was so common that pastors would write little pamphlets to give out to their congregation members so that they could help give them counsel on how to live wisely because people would come saying, I don't know what the wise choice is right now. What should I do? What do you think that question would be? The question was, it was a male question, not a female question. It was a question that men would ask and they would say, how long should I wait to get remarried after my wife dies in childbirth? Wow. You can see why that would be a question. 
I mean, like, you got 10 other kids that need to be raised, a whole entire household that needs to be run. It's not an easy era to be living in. So how, what's the proper thing to do? What's the wise way to do this? I mean, you don't want to just go get married the next girl that comes along. That might be disastrous for you. You don't want to marry on the rebound, so to speak. Uh, you, you don't want to make a foolish decision. Uh, you also, there's kind of a proper way to do things. You don't get married like just a week later. That's not showing honor to your deceased wife. So what is the wise way that you need to do this? And so again, I just simply say, Throughout the history of the world and through many other cultures, people have been very aware of death. And so they've been able to learn a lot about how to live when they consider their own mortality. And so then Solomon now goes on and he says this, look at verses 5 and 6. It is better for a man, uh, where are we here? Uh, not 5 and 6. Sorrow, there we go, 3 and 4. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise, the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. And again, he's not speaking against laughter or parties. He's simply saying that a fool only pays attention to that which makes them laugh. He's saying if you want to grow in wisdom and enjoy on how to live, you will consider the house of mourning. You will consider a funeral. You will consider what it means to go just walk through a graveyard. We think, oh, that's morbid. You don't kind of do that stuff. He's saying if you want to learn wisdom, you've got to ponder on the fact that your life is fleeting. And then you reverse engineer this to your life and you think, okay, I am going to have the same fate. And, and, and like even Heather and I, we just had a friend just a few years older than us just die like Two weeks ago, I led the funeral. So here we are, like, I know I'm, only, I'm younger than many of you, but my friends are beginning to die now too. And some of you are like, well, just wait. Uh, it's, it all gets a whole lot more as you move into the future. But it makes you think, doesn't it? When your friends are dying, when uh, the people you love are dying, when you're at a funeral, when you're mourning, in the house of mourning, you start to reflect on life and how you live. That's one way that you gain wisdom. All this was brought home to me. Again, as it has many times, just after the new year when uh, I got to attend Russell, our dear Russell Anderson's funeral. Uh, so this was just after the new year. So, of course, the new year is all kinds of parties and things like that. And we had some good parties. We had a lot of enjoyment. And, and then uh, Russell passed away and then I got to attend his funeral. And Russell had a few best friends growing up. Uh, he grew up in Vancouver on the west side of Vancouver. I pastored a church on the west side of Vancouver, and Russell's core group of best friends that he grew up with were all men and women that I know very, very well, having pastored the church there for 13 years. And so, as it is in most funerals, there was a slideshow of Russell's life. And so I got to see all these pictures of, of Russell and then all these people that I knew, mostly in their older years, in their younger years. And you're seeing them with all their strength and all their vitality. You're seeing them uh, with the, the joy of the, those who had kids with their kids. You're seeing professionally, you can tell, these are well put together people. This, I'm telling you, this group of people, incredible people in this group. Really incredible. I mean, many of them went on to do just absolutely tremendous things like founding Camp Quanos, like founding Baptist housing, like founding all kinds of things. They accomplished a lot in their lives. Then, of course, that slideshow went on. And Russell and everybody else got older and older through the entire slideshow. And so at a funeral, then you're sitting there and you're pondering on this. And then I really was struck by this fact that Russell is one of the very last of this entire wonderful group of people that I've got to know in my life. He is one of the very last now to pass away. So they're all basically gone now and sitting there going, wow, all these people I've known, 
They're all gone now. And so you begin to ponder on your own life. And so I was realizing how fleeting my own life is. So I, I was doing exactly this. I wasn't even properly thinking about this passage, but I was doing what this passage was doing. I started thinking about my own life, and I thought, if God permits me to live kind of an average number of years, let's say 80 years old, I'm 43 right now, and I thought, I'm really in the prime of my life in many ways. So I started thinking of all these things. I think, so both sets of Heather and I's parents are both alive and healthy. Uh, Heather and I have been married 21 years, so we kind of worked out some of those bugs of the early parts of marriage and enjoying one another. Uh, our kids are all at home. They're between ages of 8 and 15 right now, which is kind of some great ages. I don't have to change diapers anymore, which is really awesome. You know, I, can, I was shooting basket hoops with my son Tyler yesterday. I mean, this is great. So they're at home, but oldest is 15, so this is not going to last too much longer. Uh, even sports I was thinking about. I don't have the athletic ability that I once had, but I can still enjoy many of the sports that I live. Professionally even, I got a lot to learn about how to be a more effective pastor, a more faithful pastor. But I'm also not the young and naive lead pastor I was at 25. You should thank God for that. You got me a little bit farther along. Not quite as many mistakes. <laughs> so I was pondering on all this, and, and all this just really impacted me. And so I went home from Russell's funeral, and we were beginning to preach through Ecclesiastes at that time, and I was just starting to think, you know what? It's not that I'm living wrongly, but i got to live a little more wisely. I need to give a bit more attention to my kids because sometimes I just get caught up with other things. So like yesterday, I was waiting with my son Tyler for uh, his soccer game, and we were waiting at his sister's soccer game, and, and I had like a half hour, and he came running back to the van, and I was going over my, my sermon notes right now uh, that I'm giving to you right now, and, and he said, hey, Dad, I got an extra 50 minutes. Do you want to just go shoot hoops over at the school with me? I'm like, wow, I was like on page three, so I'm kind of in the middle of it. Uh, but I just thought of exactly this. I thought, you know, it's not every day. My son's going to say, hey, Dad, do you want to go shoot hoops with me? So, yep, put the papers aside. i got to enjoy my kids while they're young and while I can. Uh, my parents as well. got to enjoy our parents while they're still here. Our professional lives. I thought, what I want, this hit me deeply. I just thought, I want to take all that I've learned, and I just want to pour my life out for Jesus. I just want to serve him with whatever gifts and abilities I have, however I can multiply what he's given me. Lord, I, I'm in my 40s now. I got, I don't know, 15, 20 years, Lord willing, uh, of some decent youthful strength and decent amount of abilities to do things. So, Lord, I just want to pour out my life for you. I want to do this because, of course, a day is coming when my kids are going to move out of the house. I'm not going to have my athletic ability anymore. I won't be able to ride a bike like I, I, I like to do right now. And, of course, a day will come when my energy is going to fade and I'm going to have to hand the baton off to some other leaders and my time uh, will also be up for serving as a lead pastor of a church. So what Solomon is saying to us here, you can translate all this into your own life. He's saying death is your friend. It's not morbid to think about death. It's not morbid to go to a funeral. It's not morbid even to take a walk through a graveyard and to ponder on some things. If you want to grow in wisdom, he's saying, if you want to navigate life and live it the best you can, he says you will learn from death. You will let death teach you. And he doesn't tell us all the lessons we're supposed to learn. You notice that? He hasn't given them all. He's given you the principle, and now he's saying, you go out and learn for yourself. So I've given you some ways I've tried to learn just in this last little while. Your stage of life might look very different than mine, but you also need to go out and to learn. You're supposed to go to a funeral, sit with a friend who's mourning, and begin to learn what is a wise way to live, not a foolish way. That's the first thing. We said to grow in wisdom, there's three things. Here's the second. This will be shorter. If you want to grow in wisdom to navigate the seas of life, 
Then develop wisdom by listening to wise critics. Listen to wise critics. Now look at verses 5 and 6. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is a breath. It's fleeting. It's gone. Notice carefully, he does not say to listen to everyone who criticizes you. I'm grateful he doesn't say that. He says, listen to people who are wise. People who are very wise. Now, some people think they're very wise. They're not always wise. But you've got to listen to wise people, people who will care about you and who will, who will try to correct some things. It's painful, but he says it's, it'll make you far more wise than going to a great karaoke party where everyone's singing the songs and singing lyrics that really ultimately come down to nothing. Proverbs 12, verse 1 says this, Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. Receive constructive criticism in order that you might avoid some of those hidden reefs in life. Maybe it's in your professional life. Maybe it's in your character. You can avoid some of the problems if you listen to wise critics and become wise. Then there's one more area. If you want to grow in wisdom to navigate the seas of life, then here's the third thing. Develop wisdom by thinking about where things ultimately end up. Consider the ends. Consider where things go. So look at verse 8 with me. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. So in other words, a foolish person is rash. A foolish person just acts impulsively and, and reacts to whatever's happening. They, they rush into things too quickly. But developing wisdom means looking ahead to see where your actions are going to lead your ship. It might seem like an easier course this way. But it might ultimately end in destruction, for instance. Uh, verse 7, he, he gives the example of a bribe. A, a bribe in business seems like in the moment you'll accomplish, you'll get rid of all kinds of problems if you pay a bribe in business. All kinds of problems can be immediately solved for you. But as he said, long term, it's not going to help you. First of all, it's going to corrupt your heart and it can bring destruction into your life. So look to the end. Where is this action going to lead you? That's what a wise person does. And then he brings up a big example that we probably all need to hear. And that is the example of anger. Look with me at verses 8 and 9. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools." The wise person, when you, if you want to grow in wisdom, you begin to consider what's the end of anger. In the moment, it feels right to just express yourself, to vent, to say all the words that are on your heart and just say, I just need to be free to share what's on my mind. But a wise person says, maybe it's not always smart to share everything that's on your mind. Maybe you want to check your spirit a bit. Because once words are unleashed, they cause damage. Once anger is expressed, it can cause damage. And in some cases... It can never be retrieved, and it ultimately destroys you. Let me share one of my favorite quotes. I think I shared it a few years ago with you on anger. It's from Frederick Buechner. He says this, Of the seven deadly sins, anger is possibly the most fun. Why would it be fun? Because to lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll over your tongue the prospect of bitter confrontations still to come. You're thinking about what you're going to say to that person next time. To savor to the last toothsome morsel both the pain you are given and the pain you are giving back. In many ways, it is a feast fit for a king. The chief drawback is that what you are wolfing down is yourself. The skeleton 
at the feast is you. So the wise person thinks about where their anger will take them in the end and begins to humble themselves and have more of a patient spirit. And then he switches topics entirely again. Anger. Now he switches to something which I think is very appropriate for us in our day. And that is people who want to nostalgically look to the past. And their nostalgia humble, it makes them passive and it paralyzes them in the present. Look with me at verse 10. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Oh, I think this verse has tremendous wisdom for contemporary, more conservative Christians. I continually hear conservative Christians lamenting about how much our culture has moved away from God and Christian values, and of course that is true, I'm not debating that. To lament is not wrong, to think about that is not wrong, but here's where I, I do see happening a lot, is Christians falling into discouragement and even despair as they pine for the good old days. They live in some past era. And they're pondering always, why are things so much better then? And then they are not active in the present. They live in the present, but they think it's so bad they should just almost remove themselves from the present because things have gotten so bad. But Solomon says, it's not wise to ask these questions. Maybe those old days were better. Maybe they weren't. Do you really have God's perspective on exactly all that's going on? The fact remains that you and I, by God's decree, live now, in this moment, at this time. This is when he wants us to live. Not in the 19, I don't know, for some of you, not 1950s. For some of you, it's not like in Spurgeon's era or in John Calvin's era. I don't, whatever era it is you think was the good old days, he says that's not when you were born. That's not when God put us here. And how do we know where God is going to lead our culture in the future? So often I hear Christians use a phrase like, I mean, it just can't get any worse than this. I mean, I thought things were bad, and now this has happened. It can't get much worse. May I be really honest with you? It can get a lot worse, like a really lot worse. Think with me just about the days of Jesus. When, when This is the fullness of time when God sent forth his son. What was the culture that Jesus was kind of born into, the, the, the culture that the early church rose up in? It was the Roman Empire, uh, the great Roman Empire. Now, today we're concerned about all kinds of things. So, for instance, we might say, well, I'm deeply concerned. I wish we lived in the good old days because right now what really disturbs me is like things like horror movies and the absolute glorification of violence and the way these, this is so horrible. And okay, you're right. Good, true. Horror movies are not a, not a good thing. But in the Roman Empire, people didn't just sit watching screens of people getting murdered. The whole city went to Save on Foods Memorial Arena and watched as men and women literally butchered each other to death, and they came up with new and creative ways to shed blood and to kill people, and this was the entertainment. That's a lot worse. Or, of course, the other big issue, of course, the Christians would talk about is sexuality and how much our culture has moved away from Christian values on sexuality. And of course, that is true, too. No question about it. But listen... Have you ever studied a bit of the sex lives of the Roman, Roman people? I mean, just in the Bible. I don't mean like you've done a big study on that or something. But there's been plenty of studies done, as you can imagine. People like to do dissertations on those topics. Why do you think Paul, over and over again, has to say, guys, when you become Christians, guess what we don't do anymore? We don't do orgies. That word's in the Bible all the time. Like, that's, I haven't had to tell you guys that. 
I'm sure that goes on, not in our church, I'm sure. I'm, of course that goes on in culture and stuff, but that's not like a dominant issue that I as a pastor have to come up and be like, guys, today we got to have a talk, all right? Some of you are just doing stuff, this can't be happening anymore, this does not please Jesus. So things can get a lot worse, they get a lot worse in the sense of if you study a bit of history too. One of the horrible things about the Romans and the Greeks, one of the terrible practices, was that when a boy became about 12 years old, he would look for a, an adult male, and that adult, he would perform sexual favors for that adult male, and in response, that adult male would teach him how to be a man. So I am very grateful that in our culture, it's still illegal for an adult male to be with a 12-year-old boy. Things could get a lot worse. I'm not sure we should be pining for the good old days, it's not from wisdom that we ask this. Besides, who knows what God's going to do with our culture in the future? Who knows? Because the Roman Empire was the culture that God sent forth his son into. That was the fullness of time. He chose that. That was the culture from which the early church had its explosive rise. Who knows? But the de-Christianization of our culture will eventually result in Christian hope being so clear to everybody because it's going to stand out that all of a sudden millions of people turn to Jesus. Who knows what's going to happen? We have no idea where it's going to go. It's not wise then for us to pine for some good old days when we thought things were better. Our, what we need to do is live now in the era in which God has called us to live and to not be passive and step back and be like, I'm just going to let all of culture go its way. No, we've got to live now and do what Christ has called us to do now. Reminds me of some famous words uh, from the Lord of the Rings where Gandalf is talking to Frodo. And Frodo is just like falling into despair because... He is living in evil, evil days, and he's, he's having a hard life because of it, and he doesn't like it. And he says this. He says, I wish it need not have happened in my time, said Frodo. So do I, said Gandalf, and so do all who live to see such times. But that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given us. So that's the big point, too. All of life is fleeting. That is reality. How do we live? Big point. We develop wisdom. And there's three areas today where we need to learn from death. We need to listen to wise critics. And we need to think about where things will come and end, not just acting in the moment. Develop wisdom. But let's wrap it all up with one final shorter point. I'll say this. Rest confidently in the captain of your ship. And I did notice yesterday that it says confidentially. Oh, by then it was too late to choose, so I don't know what it means to rest confidentially in God. I have no idea. I don't know. Tell God your secrets and he won't tell anybody? I have no idea. That's not what I was trying to say. I think there was a spell, spell check correction because it actually happens numerous times in my notes as well. Anyways, point being, rest confidently in the captain of your ship. Look at how he sums up everything in verses 13 and 14. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will come after him. So you and I should act wisely to change those things that we, we can change. There's many things we cannot change, but we can act wisely to change things in our life. But if God has brought a season into your life that you have no control over, you cannot change it, there's no point and raging against it or something. You can't do anything about it. If it's prosperity, be joyful. If you're having a hard time, consider 
that time will also pass. God has made one day as well as the other. God is the captain of your ship. That's the good news. Whatever, whether you're in a storm right now or whether you're just going nice through peaceful waters, there is a captain at the helm of your ship, and it is your creator. It is your maker. And here's the thing. You can trust him to captain your ship no matter what kind of storms you go through. You can rest. You can let go of your anxiety and all your fears and those kind of things because if you've become a Christian, if you've given your life to Jesus, your future is utterly secure. For as Paul says in Romans chapter 8, he lists all kinds of things that could destroy you, all kinds of things that could come against you. But he says, we are conquerors over all these things. We will conquer these things. But he doesn't just say we're going to conquer them. We're going to more than conquer them. Why? Because nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing, not even death. If God is for us, nothing can be against us. So even if something as fearful as death itself if God is for us, even death is not ultimately against us and will not ultimately prevail against us. Because, yes, listen, every single one of us, we are all sailing toward the great cliffs of death. None of us can avoid these cliffs. They extend in both directions. You cannot go around them. You cannot go over death. You cannot go under death. There is no way to avoid the collision course that we are on because sin came into the world and this is the judgment for sin. So is there any hope for us then? Well, there's something else we could learn from death. If we really look death in the face and we see the inevitability of it all, we stop trying to do silly things. Like I so often read articles of people saying, like, we're going to find a, a way to just cure death, and I'm, gonna, I'm not going to die because I'm practicing this. No, we, we face reality. We will all die. And what do we learn from that? We learn it is hopeless in and of ourselves. What we can learn from it is to say, God, is there a way? that I could get through death because I don't see any hope. There's nothing in me. I can't do it. There's certainly no help anywhere else. So God, is there anything you could do to help me get through death? I don't even know what's on the other side right now, but is there anything that you can do? And the message of Christianity is, oh yes, there is. This is why we call it good news. For God sent his son into the world. God the Son became a man. Jesus Christ took on a human body. That is, he, he joined in with his own ship on our life. He crossed his own ocean that he had to cross. And then Jesus' ship was attacked. It was torn to pieces. And the wicked men of this world drove it straight into the cliffs of death. They crucified the Son of God. They took him and nailed him to a cross. And there Jesus breathed his last. And he sunk deep down into the depths. He lay dead beneath the great cliffs of death. There was, it seemed, no hope. He seems just like another victim where all these ships hit this cliff of death. We all sink down. It's a great graveyard of ships and death. He too seems like just another victim. But on the third day, God raised him from the dead. And on the third day, Jesus burst forth from the depths and he blew a hole right through the cliffs of death. And now he is the risen, he is the reigning king. And he calls out to every single one of us and he says to us, if you come to me, I have the ability to take you through death itself, to take you through and on the other side, there is a land. You don't just die. There is a land and in this land, there's no funerals. In this land, there is no anger. 
In this land, there are no evil days of adversity which you will lament. Jesus says, I have that ability. I am the risen and the reigning king. Come to me, seek my pardon for the forgiveness of your sins, and I will give it to you. Not only will I give you the pardon for your sins, I will take you through death itself. Friends, this is why the heart of Christianity is good news. I say it over and over again. But until we get this, until we say, ah, that is good news, only then, have we, we only, only until we see it as good news will we have got it. If you just think, oh, Christianity is all just rules, you haven't got it. Yet you have not understood it until you're like, wow, he can do that? And you're just like, what? Now you're getting it. Now you're coming along. So this is the message of Jesus to each one of us again today. He says, I am the way. I am the life. Anyone who comes to me, he says, I will take them to the Father. You can come to the Father. You can come beyond death and come to God, but you've got to come through me. Muhammad cannot take you through death. Buddhism cannot take you through death. And you cannot bring yourself through death. But there is one who has conquered death and has the ability to do it. So once you have him in your life, then we begin to learn wisdom and we begin to learn what it means to rest confidently in the captain of our ship, trusting he will bring us through the storms, trusting that at the end he will take us through death itself and he will eventually bring us to the other side where we will set foot on the shore of God's new world. Let's pray. We praise you. We praise you, Father, that you did not leave us in our sin, but you had mercy upon us and you sent Jesus to save us. Jesus, we worship you as the only Savior. No one else could do what you have done. No one else can do for us what needs to be done. And so we give you the praise and we give you the glory. Jesus, help us to trust you in times of adversity. In the storms, help us to trust you. Help us to give thanks and to praise you when the day is good and the waters are calm. Help us to learn what it means to live wisely, to live wisely in your world, to honor you in all things, to live our lives for you. Enable us, we pray, in your name. Amen.